0: Okay, hey, you can uh, take your Bibles this morning and <clears throat> turn to uh, the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 8. I'll give you a second to get there. It's <clears> a... <throat> so, First Samuel chapter eight, and we're gonna. This was a Sunday school lesson that I was going to teach this morning, but then kind of transitioned to studying it for the sermon today because um, it's something I had started studying through the week. So um, it's we're gonna look at overall the transition of Israel from no king to having a king. And, and what God was teaching them and is ultimately teaching us through that transition that they made. So we're going to kind of take, we're going to look at different verses through 1 Samuel, um, starting in chapter 8 and going through chapter 12, picking out certain verses um, to kind of get a feel for the interaction between Israel, God's people, and, and and how they related to God at this time when God was giving them a uh, a king, a physical king, in this an earthly king. So let's let's read. Um, we'll, we'll start in chapter eight, verse one. It says, "And it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of the fir- of his firstborn was Joel, the name and the name of the second Abiah. They were judges in Beersheba. and his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre and took bribes and perverted judgment." Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Let's bow our heads and pray as we get into the word of God this morning. Father, we thank you for this uh, part of scripture. Thank you for, uh, we know that all all, all of your word is profitable for doctrine, reproof correction, instruction, and righteousness, Lord, please help us today as we study uh, to understand your truth um, from what Israel's interaction with you and and the truth as it applies to us today, Um, even though this was thousands of years ago that these events occurred. Please help me to uh, teach, and Lord, I need your help desperately. Uh, Just help me to teach what you would have us to hear today, Father, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm just going to take this in section by section and and want to just do an overview of this time in Israel. And then we'll kind of, once we kind of think back through and remind ourselves of the facts of what was going on at this time, um, then we'll come back and, and think about, well, how does this apply to us today? And what are the lessons that God has for us? So we just read beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 8 there. Um there's a major transition going to be starting here in 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 the Israelites um in their culture in their in their land. Um this is somewhere around 250 to 350 years after entering the promised land, so it's a good amount of time. Um you remember they came out of Egypt and they spent 40 years, approximately 40 years in the wilderness wandering around. God fed them with manna, he provided for their needs. He even as they were on those journeys. He even protected them, uh, provided water for them as they were going through that 40 years or so in the wilderness. And then they came to the promised land um, some 40 years after leaving Egypt, and there was a couple of people that were still alive at that point. Um, uh, Joshua, for one, had seen what God did in Egypt, and he also had seen um, how God provided for them in the wilderness. And then he was privileged. Him and Caleb were privileged to be some of those original, the original two people that were still alive and entered the promised land. And Joshua himself lived for about 20 years after they entered the promised land. So he lived to see God, the full gamut of God bringing His people out of Egypt through the plagues, the miracles of the plagues, providing for them, and then conquering the the nations that were in the land of Canaan, miraculously conquering them for his people to come in and take over the promised land. And so now about since that point, since the time of Joshua, since the time they entered the promised land, some 350 years, 250 to 350 years have passed, and that was the time of the judges. That was the time where Israel didn't really have a king. And um, that's actually something that rather um, stands out here. Um, when you read through the book of Judges, there's multiple verses that talk about that at that time Israel had no king and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And that, in contrast, as you read through the book of Judges, to the multiple foreign countries that had kings and were invading, would would sometimes invade the land of Israel. Um, But some 350 years, God was their king and periodically they would be oppressed by some other kind of Um, nation coming in and they would cry to god turn back to him god would deliver them and set them free and they would have a period of peace while that judge ruled so so that's been going on for some 300 years at this point it's a long time and then we get to this point samuel is um we could consider him the last of the judges and and the the elders of israel are seeing a problem coming samuel's old as they point out here in chapter 8 verse 1 he made his son judges over Israel. There's a lot of debate whether he should have done that or not because being a judge, really, you didn't have a dynasty. God raised up the judges, so there's a lot of debate about whether that was right or not. But nonetheless, um, whether that was the right decision or not, it talks about in verse 3 of Samuel's sons. sons his sons walked not in his ways, but they were greedy and they took bribes and they didn't give right judgment. And... As a result, the elders of Israel gather themselves together, and they come to Samuel, and they say, "Samuel, there's a problem here. You're old; your sons are not doing what is right in in judging people." And they had just later on we'll see that there was other countries that were coming against them. Nahash the Ammonite for one of them. We'll see in chapter twelve, verse twelve, that was an issue that was rising as as a danger to their nation that he was coming. And conquering, we know that from other historical records, he was conquering, conquering the area at that time. Um, so there's legitimate problems here that the elders of Israel are facing. They're not making this up, um, and and they have a solution in mind. And they come to, and they almost point the finger at Samuel, and they say, you know, your sons aren't following you, and and in a, in a to a certain extent, they point a finger at him, and and but also point to these other problems that are going on, and and. And they say, now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. So in their mind, it was a legitimate request. Um, it was a solution they came up with on their own. And they came to him and they presented this request. Um, so let's keep reading um, Eight chapter 8, verse 6. It says, But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people and all that they say unto thee. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them, according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even unto this day, wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods, so do they also unto thee. Now therefore hearken unto their voice, howbeit yet protest solemnly unto them, and show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. So Samuel was taken aback, it seems, and rightly so. He was probably somewhat hurt personally, because um, he was a prophet, he was representing God. On top of that, they also rejected his sons by this statement, so on probably on multiple levels. And um, he was displeased. Uh, the thing was evil in his sight, as it says. in. Um, that's kind of the idea behind chapter 6, verse 1 there with the displeased. And he came to God, and God made it clear to Samuel, they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me as their king. And, and God told Samuel, well, go along and give them that which they request hearken to their voice. God God told Samuel, but also he told them to make sure that he protested solemnly unto them. And that's what he starts to do in chapter 8 verse 10 and says, and Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked of him a king. And we don't necessarily need to read all these verses here, but in in the following verses Samuel makes it clear to the people that this king that you're asking for, up to this point, they'd had 300 years where they didn't have really taxes. They didn't have a, a standing military where um, the king would need, the king that they were now appointing would now need people to run his chariots, people to make his weapons of war. He would take their daughters to be his bakers. He would tax their, their income of their vineyards and their seed. And, and so Samuel warns them, you know, all this time, God's been your king. And you haven't had to deal with these earthly things. And now um, now you're asking for a king and there are going to be consequences. And he protests solemnly to them. And in verse 18 of chapter 8 he says, And ye shall cry out in that day because of your king which he shall have chosen you. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. So God agrees to give them a king. But he, he warns them that um, he won't hear them when they cry out to him later of the, the things that that king was doing that was harming their land or harming them and taking what was theirs. In chapter 8, verses 19 through 22, uh, it says, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, Nay, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles." So they, they refuse to accept the warnings, and they demand a king. And God says, okay, give them, give them a king, according to what they say. If you jump down to chapter 9, it's the story of Saul being chosen as king. Um, and, and we'll talk more about it as we talk about the application, but uh, chapter 9... Um, in the, in the middle of the chapter, verse 15, it says, Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear a day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow about this time I will send thee a man out of the land of Benjamin, and thou shalt anoint him to be captain over my people Israel, that he may save my people out of the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people, because their cry has come unto me. So in chapter 9, we find the story of Saul. And I think we're all pretty familiar, and really chapters 9 and 10, we're all pretty familiar with that he came to Samuel looking for donkeys, and Samuel ended up anointing him as the next as the very first king of, of Israel. And um, then they, they before the whole the whole nation they gathered together, I believe it was in Mizpah um, in, in 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 chapter ten. And it was in Mizpah that they cast lots and and that's where it was shown to the whole nation that God had picked Saul to be the first king of their land. In chapter 11, there's a story that's kind of interjected here. At the end of chapter 10, it talks about how Saul went home, so after he was chosen by lot, you know, everybody came before Samuel, the whole the whole nation assembled, the elders and by lot, they cast lots for the tribes, they cast lots for the families, and narrowed it down as to who was going to be the king. After it became apparent that Saul was the guy, then it says in verse 26 of chapter 10, Saul also went home to Gibeah. In chapter 10, verse 25, it says, Samuel told the people the manner of the kingdom. At the end of that verse, it says, and Samuel sent the people away, every man to his house. So even after he was shown to be the king, chosen through lots, Everybody went home. And you don't really see an assembling of an army. You don't see an assembling of a court. Uh, we find in chapter 11 that Saul, Saul, king, the new king Saul is out. He's working in the fields behind the oxen. And chapter 11, verse 1 talks about, Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said unto Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve thee. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition will I make a covenant with you, that I may thrust out all your right eyes and lay it for reproach upon all Israel. And kind of get a picture of what kind of a man Nahash the Ammonite was. Um, and, and like I mentioned, he was he is known in extra-biblical historical literature that at this time he was had a pretty wide campaign that he was conquering that area of the world. So he was a very real threat. And he came to this town of Israel, to Jabesh Gilead. And you see, he's not a very kind person because they offer to come out to him and surrender to him and serve him. And he says, well, I'm going to thrust out all your right eyes. And it's going to be a reproach for all of Israel. And so, through chapter 11, kind of the story unfolds of how Saul, God used Saul to raise an army and, and they went and they conquered the Ammonites and, and put an end to this campaign that Nahash was going to take into probably the rest of the land of Israel. It's highly unlikely he would have stopped at Jabesh-Gilead. So they kind of got what they wanted. They asked for a king specifically to lead them against foreign armies and protect them. And God used Saul to accomplish that in chapter 11. And then in chapter 12, we kind of see a conclusion, kind of a summary of this time period, where they're transitioning to having a physical king. And it says in Samuel, this is chapter 12, verse 1, And Samuel said unto all Israel, Behold, I have hearkened unto your voice, and all that ye have said unto me, and have made a king over you. Verse 2 of chapter 12, And now behold, the king walketh before you, and I am old and gray-headed. And behold, my sons are with you. So the wording there implies, when he says, The king walketh before you. We saw that Saul was kind of off to a slow start as the king. And then God slowly established him as the king. And then by the time chapter 12 comes around, you know he says, the king walketh before you. And, and he also talks later in chapter 12, he says, witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed in verse 3. And in verse 5, he says the same thing. So talking about Saul as the anointed king of God for the nation. So at that point, uh, Saul's king is, kingship is pretty much established. But then there's a grave warning that's given in chapter 12. Um, After the fact, after they got the king that they requested, um, there's a warning that um, it says in, in verse 14, he says, chapter 12, verse 14, If ye will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall both ye and also the king that reigneth over you continue following the Lord your God. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall the hand of the Lord be against you as it was against your father's. So, coming full circle, Samuel reminds them that whether you have a king or not, your situation hasn't really changed. God still calls you to follow him in obedience. And if you follow him, then there will be blessing. And if you don't follow him, then his hand will be against you. Um, even the against your king as it says at the end of chapter twelve verse twenty five and that kind of ends the um, biblical account of overall the big picture of how Saul became the first king, how Israel on a, as a whole they exchanged God and, and having God as their king for a human king so let's think let's think a little bit about you know, what does what what are the what are the overall themes, the I know it's a it's a large part, but it's an it's one complete story of that part of their their lives. Um so so overall thinking about that time um and some of the things I think that show stand out to us or that, that stand out to us as to the the true condition of humanity and, and our lives even today, people we haven't changed. We have sinful natures just like they had sinful natures. And, and one of the first things I think that, that stands out from this time period in Israel's history is the willingness to justify our own sin and justify our own desires and not to see the truth that God has given to us. We started out talking in chapter 8 about how they came with a seemingly legitimate request they, they, they had this problem that was facing many nations in that area. Nahash the Ammonite. And, um, they also had other problems. Samuel was getting old. And they had the problem that the judges, the, the sons that Samuel had set up, were they were not following the Lord, but they were turning away in greed and taking bribes, not being very good leaders. So in their mind, they justified their request. It seemed like a logical problem with very real enemies. Um, at this point, it's likely that Samuel was around 60 years old. And, and it really shows, if you read through those first couple verses in chapter eight, verses one through five, it shows how they minimized what they were asking for. And, and really, it came out later, and, and as we as we look through this, their reasonable solution of saying, please give us a king, they were really looking for security and in, in a human being, instead of finding their security in God, instead of trusting Him, instead of wanting to submit to Him, they wanted a king that they could look to and submit to. But they framed it as a very reasonable solution and something that was out of their control. The way they framed it that, you know, it's not our fault you're getting old Samuel. It's not our fault Nahash is coming against us and wants to conquer us. It's not our fault that your sons are not following God. And and in that way, they kind of put the emphasis on, you know, someone else's failures. You know, God brought these circumstances. Instead of taking time to think, well, are we right in asking for a king, in in exchanging God for a king that we can see? Um, So really, it just shows our, our hearts are prone to justify our own actions and our own desires, especially when it comes to minimizing our own sin. That we are very good at that. Um, it also shows us that that we <clears throat> we have the ability to tell God no. It doesn't work. You know, God's going to accomplish his will, um, but we can rebel against him and choose to rebel against him. When you look at the verses here in verse um chapter 8, verse 9, they um actually chapter 10 verse oh sorry chapter 8 verse 19 it's at the end of verse 19 they say nay but we will have a king over us chapter 10 verse 19 they say nay nay or no but set a king over us chapter 12 verse 12 they say no but a king shall reign over us and that was after they came to Samuel and said Nahash is coming no, we want a king to reign over us. So they, they knew it wasn't God's will for them to exchange him for an earthly king. But they told three times, they told Samuel, No, we're not going to do that. We want a king. And they chose to disobey God. And it really shows that we may temporarily get what we want, as they did, um, but, but it was not worth it. And it's never worth it in the long run to say no to God and and ultimately we can't do that because God is going his will will be done in the end because he's God but they did say no and they temporarily got their way and we kind of see the result of that <clears throat> in um the other thing another thing that stands out when you read through these couple of chapters is desire and and the desires that motivated them in chapter 8 verse 5 they had the desire Um, to be like other nations, make us a king to judge us like all the nations, verse 5. In um, chapter 8, verse 20, it says that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. In um, Joshua chapter 10, verse 14, and even in 1 Samuel chapter 7, which was the chapter before we started reading this morning, Israel faced some very big enemies, and yet in both of those chapters it talks about how God fought their battle, that the Lord went out before them, and he, in Joshua chapter 10, that's where they were entering the promised land, and they were well-established nations that were there for probably hundreds of years, and yet God routed them before the Israelites, and, and he fought for them. And and that is what they are exchanging here when they say at the end of verse 20 of chapter 8 that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They wanted a human being to look to and place their confidence in as someone that would go out and defend them and, and fight. They didn't want God as their king and warrior and leader. They wanted someone on earth to look at. And all of that, in contrast, to, when you read, as I mentioned earlier, when you read through the book of Judges, four times that statement is made. There was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own sight. And that's in contrast through the book of Judges to all the people around them that had kings, and that the Moabite kings came and conquered them. And and the uh, that was the story of Ehud and Eglon. He was a Moabite king. And then Midian, they had kings that Gideon conquered. So in contrast to the nations around them, which they were looking at they wanted they wanted to have a king they didn't want to follow God it's interesting that God gives them a king that they're looking for one that would be respected among worldly nations in first Samuel chapter 9, the story of Saul it says in chapter 9 verse one that at the end of verse one it says or now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeor, the son of Barakath. The son of Aphia, Benjamite, a mighty man of power. The idea is a mighty man of wealth and influence. So Saul's line, he came from a line of wealth and influence. All that, if you were if you were in a foreign country of, at this time looking to find a king, you would want someone that was a man of wealth and influence because that's what gets things done in this world, politically. And so Saul was coming from that type of a family. Um, It talks about in verse 2 of chapter 9, he had a son whose name was Saul. He was a choice young man and a goodly. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. From a perspective of being a military leader, being larger and taller than everyone around you would give you an advantage, especially back then when they didn't have many machines to fight battles. And a lot of it was hand-to-hand combat. So, this was a man that would. They wanted someone to lead them to battle. This was a man that was built to lead them to battle, and and God's giving them what they're asking for, and you know it says he was a goodly. There was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. Could those those Hebrew words could talk about the condition of the heart and someone that is following God, um, but specifically in this instance, with the 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 rest of the verse talking about his physical stature, seems to imply that he was a good-looking person, that um. That would be good at you know talking in front of people and and leading people. Uh, even though it does talk about how initially at first he was shy. In uh, in chapter ten, verse twenty-three, there is a reminder again that he was higher at the end of verse twenty-three of chapter ten. He was higher than any of the people from his shoulders and upwards. So another emphasis on his physical stature. Verse 24 of chapter 10, And Samuel said to all the people, See ye him who the Lord hath chosen, that there is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted and said, God save the king. So even when he was revealed to Israel as king, um, it, it's made apparent that you know he, he looked good. He looked like he was going to be a good leader. And I, I can't help but think of this in light of David's whenever Samuel was called to, to get Saul's replacement in King David. And in First Samuel 16, verse 6 and 7, it says, And it came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. So King David was a man that God saw his heart and chose him for his heart to be the king because he saw that his heart was right with God. But when you look at the choosing of Saul and the emphasis on the externals, they asked for a king to do certain things. They didn't ask for a king to lead them to follow God. And God gave them a king, it seems, that met what they asked of him. And that's really Saul's name. The definition is asked of God. In Hebrews, they asked of God. And and yes, um, as we read through here, God did choose Saul to a certain extent. Um, That that is made clear that part of once the people were going this route and asked for a king, God chose the specific person. and, And it almost seems like he chose that person to teach them a lesson. But it all started with a desire to be like the nations around them, and and even to leading to the point where it seems like the king that they got was one that met the needs of their expressed desire to be like the nations around them that wasn't as focused on what does God think or care about the heart. God warned them repeatedly. That's something that definitely stands out. In um, chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Now there was a man of Benjamin. If you go back to Genesis 49.10, it talks about how the scepter will not depart from Judah. It was clear that the king had to come through Judah, and that's where David ended up coming from. So whatever God was teaching them through Saul was something that was temporary, because he was from the land of or the tribe of Benjamin. It's uh the, the the fact that God hearkened to their voice shows up in chapter 8, verse 7. He says, Hearken unto the voice of the people and all that they say unto thee. He goes on, and there's five, four other times ending in verse 12 of chapter 12. It says, actually that's the wrong reference, I'm sorry. But there's, there's three other places where um, it says God hearken, tell Samuel to hearken to their voice and listen to what they said. So basically they got what they asked for, what they wanted, but they were warned, very clearly warned, of, of the problems with having a king instead of God and replacing God in their lives with a king. It was not... And the pattern of rejecting God and replacing Him with something else is something that is, is kind of impressed through this whole story as well. That's how he started out talking to Samuel. He says, They have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me, He says in chapter 7, or chapter 8, verse 7, that I should not reign over them. The the problem was they didn't want to have God reigning over them. In uh, chapter 10, verse 19, it talks about how they rejected their God. They said, And ye have this day rejected your God, who himself saved you out of all your adversities and your tribulations the very god they had come to know the god they were in covenant with when you think about in Exodus chapter 20 when they came out god basically told them that he would be they would be his treasured possession and they were exchanging that god as their leader and wanting to find security and hope in a worldly leader and and it was displeasing to god in in chapter 8 verse 6 it displeased samuel well the, the rest of these chapters make it clear that it was displeasing to God. If, if you go to chapter 12 at the very end of this story, it, it says in chapter 12, verse uh, 16, it says, Now therefore stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. They didn't seem to at this point realize how displeasing what they were doing was to God. But that didn't change the fact that it was displeasing in His sight. And here Samuel, at the end of all of this, after Saul is established as a king, he, he, he prays in, in verse 17, it says, Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call unto the Lord, and He shall send thunder and rain, that ye may perceive and see that your wickedness is great. Um, up till now, they didn't know their wickedness was great. They didn't acknowledge it. It wasn't something that they perceived. It wasn't something that they understood or that they saw. To them, they had just asked for a king. And and at the end of the story, Samuel sits down with them, and he says, you need to see and understand the greatness of the wickedness that you have committed in asking for a king. And it says, the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And the people said unto Samuel, pray for thy servants unto the Lord thy God that we die not, for we have added unto all our sins this evil to ask us a king. And so they come to realize, they come to see with their eyes as God sees and realize the the great, as it says, the great wickedness in asking for a king to replace the Lord. And it says they greatly feared Him. But it's it's sobering to think that through the previous three chapters of all this was going on, they didn't think, they didn't understand, they didn't perceive, even though it was very displeasing to God, that what they were doing was very displeasing to Him. And that's, Part of walking in the fear of the Lord is realizing that we as human beings can do things to displease God with our attitudes and our actions and and the motives of our heart and not even stop to think that we are displeasing Him. Which leads to another thought. Um, Through these four chapters, we see multiple times Samuel saying, telling people to stop and consider something instead of just going about their lives. In in chapter 9, verse 27, he says, But stand thou still a while, that I may show thee the word of God. And that's when he's telling Sam, Saul that he's going to be the next king. He says, Stand still a while, and I will tell you the word of God. And then in chapter 12, verse 7, he says, Now therefore stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord of all the righteous acts of the Lord. He tells them to stand still and that he needed to reason with them and talk to them about the righteous acts of God. And he goes into, in the following verses in chapter 12, he goes into talking about how God had delivered them over and over again in the time of the judges, as they were coming through the wilderness, as they were entering the promised land, when they turned back to God and they repented and they asked God for, for, for salvation from their enemies, that God saved them every single time. And he calls that the righteous acts of the Lord in verse 7. And he lists some of the judges in verse 9. He talks, or actually some of the people that oppressed them. He lists some of the judges in verse 11. He talks about Jerubbabel, who was Gideon, Jephthah, Samuel, judges that God raised up. And and the point is, though, that he stopped them and he said, stand still and let me reason with you about the righteous acts of God. And then verse 16, the third time in these couple of chapters that this thought comes up, he says, now therefore stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. And at that point, he prayed for rain to come in the wheat harvest. And uh, at that time, during the wheat harvest, um, there wasn't It was very unusual to have rain and thunder. And yet he prayed for that and he told them, Stand still and watch this. So so that thought of through these chapters, you see the interaction with people, the nation, they're interfacing with God, and yet they never stop to consider that you know what what was their true condition before the Lord? And at the very end of it all, Samuel calls them and, and gives them this this visual example of the the rain and the thunder and and makes it clear to them how great their sin has been in God's sight. But it's a reminder that we need to stop and come before God and stop rushing around with the busyness of our lives and take the time to study his word and consider where do we stand and that what we do each day matters. Um, In chapter 8 verse 8 he says, According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt unto this day wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods so so they also so do they also unto thee he says since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt unto this day God knew the very day they started turning away from him in idolatry unto the same day that he was talking to Samuel and then if you go over to chapter 10 verse 19 it says And ye have this day rejected your God, who himself saved you out of all your adversities. So he says, this very day you have chosen to reject your God. And then if you go over to chapter 12, verse 17, he says, Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call unto the Lord, and he shall send you thunder and rain, that ye may perceive and see that your wickedness is great. So this day was the day they were going to see their wickedness was great. So it really even though this happens over a span of a good length of time, even though it had been 350 years or so since they entered the land of, of Canaan and, and the the things that Samuel is talking about goes all the way back to Egypt, the day matters. And, and that each day, God knows whether we have a heart that's following him or not. And and those are recorded in his books. And he knows. And, and Samuel admonishes them over and over again to remember the past works of God. As he's talking to them about the wickedness of asking for a king, he reminds them of how God as their king had met their needs. There's five, five times that I picked out, and there's probably more in these chapters where, where Samuel goes back and talks about Egypt or talks about entering the promised land and how it was God that gave them that salvation. So uh, that's another takeaway that He encourages them to take time to remember the past works of God. And the last last thing that I would just emphasize um, is is Samuel's ongoing seeking of the Lord. What they did was wrong in seeking a king and exchanging him for God and, and taking the king instead of God. But when you look at how Samuel handles this whole situation... And how he kept going back to God in prayer and seeking the Lord. In chapter 8, verse 6, it says, but the thing displeased Samuel. And at the end of verse 6, it says, and Samuel prayed unto the Lord. In chapter 8, verse 18, it says, it talks about how God would not hear them. Speaking of unanswered prayer because of their sin in asking for a king. In chapter 8, verse 20, it says, Um, Samuel, um, actually in in verse 21 of chapter 8, Samuel heard all the words of the people and he rehearsed them in the ears of the Lord. So as the story unfolds, he keeps going back to God. In chapter 10, verses 17 and 19, it says they presented themselves before the Lord. And that was to elect, basically, to, to cast the lots to set up Saul as their king. It says, and Samuel called the people together unto the Lord to Mizpah. And... In verse nineteen, at the end of it, now therefore present yourselves before the Lord. Verse twenty-two of that same chapter. Therefore they inquired of the Lord further when they couldn't find Saul. Chapter eleven, verse fifteen, it says, and all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord. And chapter twelve, verse seventeen, um, he says, Samuel says, "Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call unto the Lord, and He shall send thunder and rain." And and it's a reminder that a, a, a person who's following God is continuing to follow God. This was a hard time for Samuel. This was not something that I think he wanted to go through at the end of his life. That's clear that he was very displeased in chapter 8. And yet, as a prophet of God, he was called to see the nation through this. God had a purpose in this. and And each step of the way, he sought God, and he came back to God, and he rehearsed things in God's ears. And, and as we live as Christians, day in, day out, it never stops our need for us to go back to the Lord and pray. And it's really our arrogance and pride that, that we get busy or we think we don't need to ask God for help. And I think that um, Samuel's life, especially at this trying time, reminds us of the importance of... Seeking God in all things as we continue to live in this world. And I'll leave you with what Samuel left the people with at the end of chapter 12. How he kind of concludes this time in Israel's life as they set God aside and began looking to a king for their security and for their salvation. And that is the fact that whether you have a king or not, didn't really change anything for the Israelites. In chapter eleven, there's the story of Nahash coming against them, and it says that. And it says that, talking of Saul, that he it's in verse six. And the spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard those tidings, and his anger was kindled greatly. And it says, And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent to follow Saul. The fear of the Lord fell on the people. And then at the end of chapter 11, it says in verse 13, And Saul said, There shall not a man be put to death this day, for today the Lord hath wrought salvation in Israel. So great victory over the Amorites. But it was God that did it. In the same way that God used the judges. God would raise up a judge, and He would conquer a foreign nation with the judge, working through the judge. In chapter 11, God uses Saul as the first king exactly the same way as He used the judges. So, their relation with God needed to be focused on him and not necessarily on the king that he provided. And and really, that's how Samuel ends this whole thought. In chapter 12, he says, "...if you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord..." Then shall both ye also and the king that reigneth over you continue following the Lord your God. So if they would obey, and that's something that we struggle with. If they would obey, that's what it came down to in faith. If they would obey God, then both them and their king would continue to follow the Lord. But verse 15, if, in chapter 12, If you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall the hand of the Lord be against you as it was against your father's. So having a king or no didn't matter. What mattered was where God's hand was at the end of verse 15 there. Was God's hand against them or was God's hand for them? And it really boiled down to were they following him or were they engaged in idolatry and forsaking him for other gods? The same thing could happen with a king or without a king. And, and it's, it's a reminder that they still had the choice to follow God. And, and we have the same choice um, each moment of each day of whether we're going to choose to follow Him, their circumstances didn't matter, king or no. The choice was whether they were going to worship the true God or not. And, and we have many circumstances in our lives that we can point to, like they pointed to, as logical problems and reasons that we need security and things of this life, whether it's money or, or, or people, whatever we look to for our trust and our security we can logically point at things in our life, circumstances, and say, this is why I need security in this thing. When at the end of the day, our security and our worship should be of God alone as, as, our, as our king. Because he is our king, and we know that later on, um, Revelation tells us he will come and set up his kingdom. So, really for us in the New Testament, each day are we following King Jesus. Do we look at Him as our King? Do we submit to Him as our King? They didn't want to obey. That's why they wanted an earthly King. But we are called to follow. Jesus called His disciples to follow. And and I think the overarching lesson for us is to not justify our sinful desires and instead in all areas of life to follow the Lord and... um not like the Israelites, but really like Samuel gives us an example of continuing to go back to him in prayer and continuing to seek him in all areas of our lives. So let's bow our heads and we'll pray together. Father, we thank you for this transition time in Israel that the example of someone in a nation that um, exchanged you for a, a worldly king that they could look to and trust in and find their confidence in. Lord, help us not to find our confidence in the things of this life and our our joy and our hope, but Lord, help us to see you as our king, as our rightful king, and submit to you and, Lord, follow you each day in the obedience that comes from faith that that Samuel describes for the, the nation of Israel. Even this week, Lord, help us to submit to you and follow you. And we ask this in your name. Amen.